We're reading from John today, John chapter 2, I think in the uh, New Life Bibles there, if you've got one, I think you start on page 77, if I'm correct. The rest of you, good luck. I have no idea what page your Bible starts on for the book of John. Uh, Whatever it is, you can turn there. It's in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. It is the fourth gospel. Uh, It is the one gospel that is separate from the other three. The other three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are known as the synoptic gospels, meaning that they capture and portray effectively the same story, yes, from some different perspectives, for sure, and that's a good thing. We all have different perspectives of the story or the narrative that's going on around us, Uh, and those three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are all packaged in very similar ways, tell similar stories. John is different. The book of John uh, unpacks the life and times of Christ in, uh, in a very clear and concise way. Uh, certain things are left out from what we see in other uh, iterations of the gospel message, but in the book of John, it's wonderful. The book of John is packaged together in an efficient way so that the reader is able to partake in it, grow in it, understand and know who Christ is, and also the reader is intended to be moved by the work of Jesus Christ in his context so as they are brought to a place of believing in Jesus. So the Gospel of John was written so that you may believe in Jesus. And this is a good thing. A lot of us in this day and age in the world that we live in may feel very removed from the idea or the reality of who Jesus is. We might feel very divorced from the idea of Christ as a person, as a real man. But the book of John unpacks uh, Christ's miracles that we see, significant miracles. It also unpacks the statements of who he is, declaring that he and God are in fact the same. This is a big deal. This is a massive revelation for the Jewish world at the time, but also has uh, profound effects on the broader world uh, in Christ's time, but also in our world right now recognizing that Jesus is indeed the answer that we need, the salvation that we need, the savior that we need. And the book of John looks at all of that and helps us understand more about the character of Christ. So today we are reading from John chapter two, verses one through 11, 12-ish. And we are unpacking the wedding at Cana. We are talking about the wedding at Cana, and it is the first miracle that Jesus performs turning water into wine. Jesus is performing this miracle, turning water into wine. And, uh, and this miracle is profound, not only it being his first miracle, but even that phrase, you know, it's uh, turning water into wine, it sounds like an impossibility. We've heard it in our vernacular and how we describe things, uh, but the reality is that Jesus did an impossible thing and he made it possible because of his divinity. Jesus is divine. Jesus, his origins stem from a place that is far beyond our understanding. He descends from heaven to earth, took on the body of man, humankind, and he was able to live in, be in, and minister to the community around him so that people were able to understand who he was. He performed miracles. He made statements 
statements quoting previous scripture. Uh, his entire life was effectively foretold in ancient writings, pretty miraculous stuff. And more, more than that, we see Jesus walk through his life, starting ministry at the age of 30 years old, walking faithfully in that as he, the Holy Spirit came upon him. He was effective in ministry, going out into the world. Lives were changed and transformed. Uh, the rulers of the world at that time did not like Jesus. They did not like what he stood for. They did not like the reality that Jesus was foretold to be this ruling king for the Jewish people. Uh, there were many forces at work that were trying to quash the message of Jesus. As a matter of fact, the very tax dollars that Jesus told his people to pay back to the government. So when Jesus uh, goes and he's telling people, well, what should we, their people are asking, what should we do? This government is collecting our tax money. We don't like what they're doing. We don't like what they're doing with it. And Jesus makes this very famous statement, render unto Caesar what is due to Caesar. So he's making a statement to the followers around him and to the community around him. Look, pay your taxes. It's not going to kill you. You are not inhabitants of this earth. Your soul is part of something greater than the finite. You, because of me, are connected to the infinite. So what happens here and now, for the most part, don't worry about those things worry about following me. And it's interesting because Jesus makes some of these profound societal statements that really caused people to wonder, is this guy off his rocker or not? The same taxes that Jesus told people to pay back to the government were the very same taxes that funded the genocide of all of the little boys that were born in when Jesus was born. That's right, Herod sent out a decree to kill all the newborn baby boys because he was trying to prevent Jesus rising up to who he was supposed to be. There were nefarious things at work and still Christ said, look, live honorably and peaceably with those around you so much as it depends upon you. And so Jesus makes these very interesting calls and these profound statements to the world around him that seem to uh, conflict maybe with what our flesh wants at times, but the way of following Jesus is the better way. And Jesus can take the ordinary and transform it into to extraordinary when we say yes to him. So this morning as we read through John chapter two, verses one through 12, I want you to keep that in mind, how Jesus takes the ordinary and transforms it into extraordinary. And I want you to wrestle with this this morning. Do you feel that you have been living or dealing with a fairly ordinary existence? Do you feel that you have been living with or dealing with a fairly ordinary existence and that there is something inside of you that deeply desires more but you don't have the capacity or ability in and of yourself to produce these things? You cannot self-manifest greatness and you wonder, is there more to life than this? The answer to that is going to be answered today as we dig into the scriptures and we see what Jesus does here. So, open your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter two. If you do not have a Bible or you would like to read the same translation I am reading, you can go ahead and read on the screen. If you would like to endeavor to read along, open up your Bibles, grab a pen, and what I want you to write down is at the beginning of chapter two where it says a big number two, 
at the front of that chapter, it probably is titled The Wedding at Cana. What you can do in there is you can just write down in little letters, you can write down miracle number one, okay? Miracle number one. And this, when you open up your Bible again in the future and you flip through, this maybe is the first time you've written in your Bible, but this will help you remember this is the first miracle performed by Christ. And then as you remember that, you can recall what we've discussed here today so that you can grow in understanding of God's word. So here we go. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. Side note, who's here, who, who here has ever been to a wedding before? Excellent. Who here loves going to weddings? They are great. Who here loves them so much they've done it twice? Hallelujah. God bless you. Weddings are fantastic. They are fun. They're always an adventure. I come from an Italian family, and there is, the weddings in the Italian culture are always vibrant and full of excitement. Sometimes you get mafia members showing up with little violin suitcases, and they go around and threaten you and extort you to get money for the bride and groom. It is a beautiful tradition. It's a beautiful thing that we all love to participate in. It is a good time. Weddings are fun, and weddings have strong and deep cultural significance in different parts of the world. We've kind of watered things down here in Canada because we have an incredible mix of of, uh, cultures, and and that's a great thing. But there are specific cultural pieces about weddings in different cultures that make them very exciting and vibrant and crazy and wild, and they are events to behold, crazy events to see. If you've been in the Lower Mainland and you've seen uh, the Sikh weddings that happen, those are absolute wild and crazy events. Uh, If you've seen a Jewish wedding, which we'll talk about here really briefly, those are crazy adventures. Italian weddings, they're they're big events. Everyone gets together. It is a party not just for the bride and groom, but for the entire community that's connected to the bride and groom and to the bride and groom's family. A wedding is an opportunity for honor to be poured out upon a family. A wedding is an opportunity for uh, uh, the, the family of the bride and groom to actually be set apart part in a community. It's an opportunity to be a blessing to the community around you. It is a huge, fun, wild, and crazy adventure, and we have got like eight weddings, I think, that are coming up here in the next few months, and they are going to be wild and crazy adventures in their own right. We are so excited to celebrate and party with these folks that are getting married. So we've got this wedding that's happening. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, And the mother of Jesus was there. Her name's Mary, by the way, in case you don't know that. Mary's the mother of Jesus. Just more things you can jot down in your notes here. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And in some translations, there's an exclamation mark at the end of their, they have no wine, uh, because this is a big deal. They have run out of wine. Mary grabs Jesus by his tunic and says, son, they've run out of wine. What are we supposed to do? And the rest of the world doesn't quite grasp yet the reality of who Jesus is. But his mom knows because moms always know. Isn't that right, moms? You just know that your little one is special uh, and you just have this feeling about them. And Mary is recognizing that his son may have an opportunity to remedy this very challenging situation. There is no wine. They have run out of wine. And you need to understand that culturally, this is a huge deal. 
This is a big deal because wine is very important in the Jewish celebration of marriage. It is so important. And if you run out of wine or run out of food, what it does is, in fact, it turns this ceremony that is in, in place and celebratory and fun and intended to bring incredible honor upon the married couple and their family. Suddenly, everyone starts talking. They start tweeting, this is a bust. There's no wine. They ran out of it. Some guys are putting it on their Instagram story. Look at these empty glasses. Hashtag wedding sucks. And, they don't, and, it, and it just goes viral. And suddenly, it's cancel culture completely for the whole family, and they have been shunned from society because they ran out of wine at the wedding. And I know I'm joking a bit, but the reality is, is this would have been a very, very big, bad deal for the family to run out of wine mid-celebration on this wonderful occasion. So Mary, his mom, turns to Jesus and says, they have no wine. And Jesus, some of your Bibles are in red letters, that means that Jesus spoke it. Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour hasn't come yet. Now, I was corrected. I thought the woman was a derogatory term. Woman, what are you doing? That's not the case. In fact, it was a normal way to talk to somebody. So just in case you're concerned, I was uh, corrected on that. It wasn't derogatory. Jesus was just saying, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour hasn't come yet. So his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. So she's, she's chapped now, right? Because she goes to her son, who she knows is a big deal, because an angel told her that he was going to be a big deal when she gave birth to him. And she understands that there is something special about this boy, who is now 30 years old, no longer just a child, who now turns to his, her son and says, son, you've got to fix this problem. And Jesus says, what does this have to do with me? My, my hour hasn't come yet. And then she's frustrated and she turns to the servants. And again, in some of your translations, there'll be an exclamation mark at the end of this. And uh, Mary says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. And she's like, that's it. I got to go out there and see if I can fix this situation, remedy this situation. So now there are six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification. Where's the picture of the water jars? Do we have a picture up there? Is it going to show up? Oh, there we go. It's, part, it's half, but you can kind of see it a little bit. There's a picture of the water jars. Now, I don't know if you can understand the perspective of these things, but they are not tiny. They are massive. We're talking about 35 to 40 gallons big. They are huge, and they are carved out of solid limestone. Uh, pretty big deal. This is actually one of the water jars that was actually at Cana. It was on Earth, uh, and it's now in a museum in Jerusalem. <clears throat> pretty cool. So they were big, water jars. So there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. We know that they're between 30 and 40 gallons. They're humongous, humongous vats for water. Jesus said to the servants, fill these jars with water. And the servants came and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw out some of the water and take it to the master of the feast. Okay, <clears throat> so they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, which now had become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, 
That's code for when they're well sauced. Uh, they, when they had drunk freely, then the, the poor wine comes out. Because you never, like, you know, or, you, know you, you just get it out of the way and then they won't even know the difference towards the end of the party. Uh, but you, he says, you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of the signs that Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and the disciples believed him. Not too many people were present in seeing what actually happened behind the scenes. They got to reap the benefits of Christ's miracle, but few had an opportunity to see the miracle. So this was not a public miracle. Even though it had public consequence, it was not a public miracle. Only Jesus' mother and the servants, and then also because they were told about it, the disciples um, understood and knew what had gone on. The host of the home experienced, the host of the wedding, I'm sorry, experienced the great joy that came from this miracle. But the miracle had great public consequence for the groom and the family and the community. Jesus was not seen doing these good things just yet. He was not seen by the public as he performed this miracle, but the miracle had public effects. You see, it was a personal event that happened with only a few involved, but it had consequence for a broader population of people, which is quite interesting. So before we go any further, I want to talk about the significance of these water pots, and I just, I found this interesting as I was digging through this, because, you know, why, why are there six water pots? What was the purpose of these six water pots? Why not just have one water pot? Why were there six? What does this look like? Well, it's pretty interesting. So these, these, these were big water pots. And they hold, held, you know, 30 gallons or more of water. They were massive. And you think about it, Jesus takes the water and he turns it into wine. That's like 180 gallons of wine. 820 liters. Of all the miracles to be performed first, this happens to be the first miracle. Very interesting. And some people say, well, it's because Jesus really liked his wine. And other people say, well, Jesus really loved to party. And other people say, well, why wouldn't he do something so much that's full of so much fun? But it's more than that. And we'll get into that shortly. So what's the significance with these six water basins? Well, it's actually interesting. These water basins, these six water basins, actually paint a picture of the six ages. The six ages that we see unfold in scripture. What are these six ages? Well, the first age is this, Adam to Noah. And then we have Noah to Abraham. Abraham to David. And then we see David, from David to the exile to Babylon. And then from the exile to Babylon to Christ. And then from Christ to the end of the world, which is in present time. And you can see that unpacked in Matthew. And what's interesting is that Jesus is looking at these six basins of water that were empty that needed to be filled. And as he's looking at these six basins of water, what we see is an incredible picture unfold that Jesus is outside of the time of these ages. Since these were empty and they needed to be filled, they were filled, but they actually needed to be filled with substance. 
all of time that has passed since the dawn of time until everything comes to a close at the end of time, all of that time is pointless unless there is substance connected into it. You see, they were filled. The servants came and filled them up with water right to the very top. They were filled, but they needed to be fulfilled by Christ. And it's interesting because in this, we see that without the arrival and the fulfillment of Christ, the ages, the time that has gone before us and the time that is coming after us, it truly remains empty and meaningless in and of itself unless we put Jesus into the middle of it all. You see, time comes and time goes, and that's wonderful, and it just continues on that way. But unless Christ is brought into the center of the ages, into the center of our situations, unless our lives and our time are filled, and not just filled, but fulfilled by the recognition of who Jesus is, really, they're empty and meaningless and can actually serve no purpose. So I just found that quite interesting that we see Jesus looking out at these six empty vats and the obedience of the servants to come and fill these vats, but Christ put substance inside something that was empty. And when you look back at the beginning of the scripture and you unpack everything that unfolds throughout all of those ages up to the time of Christ, Christ is the fulfillment of everything that we see unfold in the scriptures. In fact, the very beginning of the Bible alludes to the person of Jesus Christ as being part of God. The name, the Jewish name for God, Elohim itself, has an understanding that there are more than just one player in the Godhead. Elohim is a plural form for God that exists in a singular form. It's very interesting. It ends with I am, Elohim, denoting that there is a multiple in the existence of one. And the culture at the time, the culture that Jesus was born into, the Jewish world at the time, didn't recognize him as their own. We see that in the beginning of chapter one. He came to them, although the world did not know him. Even his own did not know him. They weren't aware of the reality of who Jesus really is. Jesus not only is the fulfillment of prophecy, he was there at the beginning with God and the Holy Spirit. He was present during his time on earth as a flesh and blood person, and he is preparing a place for his church, for his people in the kingdom of God. The personhood of Jesus is crucial to understand. And what's amazing is that he was present in the midst of these empty jars. He was present outside of the existence of these empty jars. And he called on servants to fill them up. And then he was able to utilize them for the fulfillment of the word. Maybe you've been empty and you've wondered, what on earth is this whole thing about? I want to challenge you this morning to ask the Lord, Lord, can you fill me with substance? 
so that I may have purpose for you. Lord, can you fill me with substance so that I may have purpose for you? So the second piece we want to look at this morning, that's just an interesting kind of preamble. The other piece we want to dig into this morning is this whole situation around the best wine. What's up with this? The best wine. Now, I already explained earlier, there is something important about the celebration of the wedding, especially culturally and societally for the Jewish people at that time. It was a big deal. It was fun. It was a party. It was a blast. There was incredible food. They didn't serve hot dogs, but they served many other things that were wonderful. That was a kosher joke. And uh, they had a lot of fun dancing and celebrating and reminiscing and telling stories. And it was a community event that not only affected the bride and groom and gave them a standing in the community, a reputation in the community for their work, for their, uh, for their businesses, whatever it is they were involved in. It not only established that for the bride and the groom, but for the family, it was an incredible honor because they were able to stand out in the midst of society to bring joy and fun and celebration to the rest of their peers. It was an event to behold. And Jesus was partaking in this event to behold. It was fun. But what's the, what's the whole point around this best wine situation as we see at the end when, when the host is saying, wow, you saved the best wine for last? You saved the best wine for last? If the wine ran out not only if the good wine ran out, but the bad wine ran out. This is an embarrassment. This affected social credibility. It was dishonoring. It brought dishonor to the family. But what's interesting here is Jesus performed a secret miracle to stave off the dishonor or prevent the dishonor for the groom and the bride and the host family. Jesus actually had a concern for the people themselves and not a profound concern for anyone recognizing who he was in this moment. He had a profound concern for the people that were connected in to this party. You see, the miracle of turning this water into wine didn't just fix a shortage of wine. It was crucial for Christ that this miracle didn't only fix a shortage of wine, but instead it also helped a family out. He did much more than simply fill a need of providing wine to a wedding. Jesus turned an embarrassment into a blessing. I want you to think about that for a moment. Jesus turned an embarrassment into a blessing. We could all say that, you know, perhaps the bride and groom or the host family, they deserved every bit of embarrassment that they get. Why? They didn't plan properly. They didn't project ahead to consider how many people might be present at this wedding. Perhaps 
for whatever reason, they were being cheap. They thought, well, you know what? Uh, we're going to hold off a little bit. Maybe we'll just portion things out a little smaller because we just don't have the funds to be able to support the event that's in front of us. And, you know, there's many reasons why they likely ran out of wine, and we could blame it on the bride and groom and the host family, and we could put the blame all sorts of places. Think about our own lives and the situations that we find ourselves in. I'm sure a lot of the situations that we find ourselves in, the blame for that can fall solely on us. And in fact, we should deserve every single thing that comes our way because of our contribution to the situation. We should deserve it. But a beautiful thing happens in this situation where the very thing that this family ought to deserve, dishonor, disrespect, hanging their heads in shame, being known as that family who couldn't do a wedding right, the very things that they deserved were held back from them, actually not even held back from them, removed from them completely because not only was honor restored in this miracle, Greater honor than the family ever could have attained on their own was given to them because even better wine showed up at the end and that was not even normal. Jesus turned an embarrassment into a blessing. Think about your own situations. Think about your own situations. Can Jesus turn an embarrassment into a blessing? This wine, it was said to be better. The best wine. I don't know about you, but everything that I've read about wine is uh, freshly made wine probably isn't the best wine. It takes some time. It has to age appropriately. It was brand new. This stuff was brand new instant wine. How on earth can it be the best wine? And these folks, they probably know their wine. Why? Well, they make it. They manufacture it. They produce it. It was a community event to smash those grapes and collect the juice and to bottle it and to allow it to age appropriately. This is something that these people knew. They were intimate with it. In fact, it was a huge part of their culture, but also a massive part of how they were able to produce and make it by. This was part of their businesses. How on earth can this instant wine be the best wine? Good wine takes time. It can't be instant, can it? But what I love is that God is not a respecter of time. God is not a respecter of time. It takes time to make good wine, but Jesus' works, listen to this, Jesus' works supersede the bounds of time. Jesus' works supersede the bounds of time because Christ exists outside of time. 
just as he exists outside, separate from those six jars representing the six ages, Christ is outside the boundaries of time. And because Christ is outside the boundaries of time, he can do miraculous works that appear to us to only take an instant. You see, good wine takes time, but better, better wine takes a miracle. This miracle shows a few things. <clears throat> Number one, it shows that God works outside the boundaries and the linearity of time. How do we know that? Well, we see it represented here as he's able to take mere water and turn it into wine like this, and not only okay wine, but the best wine. We see this represented at the beginning of Genesis. The parallels are beautiful. We see that in six days, God created everything. This might break our heads a little bit to fathom with this, and I understand there are all sorts of different ideas and thoughts about how this whole thing came about. Like, you know, one day is the equivalent to a thousand years in God's eyes. There's a lot of thoughts around how on earth can we apply our linear understanding of time to what we see in Scripture scriptures, and I'll tell you a secret. If you endeavor to take the Bible seriously, you just have to simply put some things on the shelf until God gives you revelation about them. Because in and of ourselves, we can't quantify how God works. We can't. And when we begin doing that, we begin discounting the miraculous for the sake of our own understanding. I, I resorted to a long time ago to just simply accepting the miraculous work that God does. I, I don't have to understand it, and truthfully, there are times where I just don't like it. But if I say that I believe that there is a God that exists outside of everything that we know, and can affect not only atoms and molecules, but can also order the stars into their place. If I even say that I believe anything along those lines, that in and of itself is miraculous, unquantifiable, amazing thing. Have we stopped believing in the miraculous for the sake of applying our own understanding? It's good things to wrestle with. So this miracle shows us that God works outside of the boundaries and the linearity of time. If that weren't true, why do we pray? How is it possible that we can profess things with our mouth here in this time frame that we live in and have an expectation that God hears our prayers and affects situations around our world or in our lives, stops cancer in his tracks, raises people from the dead, heals lives, mental illness, physical illness, restores marriages. How can we believe that that's possible and not believe in the incredible, miraculous work of God that exists outside of time? These are good things to wrestle with. These are good things to ponder when you're trying to fall asleep at night. You're not gonna sleep at night, it's gonna be good. You guys are gonna have a good night tonight. So, God works outside the boundaries of time. The second piece we see in this miracle is that Jesus takes the ordinary and turns it into extraordinary. Jesus takes the ordinary and turns it into extraordinary. 
Did you know that when you say yes to Jesus, you are opening up the doors for Jesus to come into your ordinary and create extraordinary out of it? But here's the thing is, it's not for you to become famous, ever. It's for Christ's name to be declared as holy. It's for Jesus' name to become famous. It's so that people will recognize the truth and the authority of God, surrender their hearts to him, and have eternal life because of the work of Christ. It's not to make you famous. Even though he can take the ordinary and turn it into extraordinary, it is not there to make you famous. Just this, if this was written in modern days, by a really, really good motivational speaker, we would learn all about the incredible self-manifesting power of these six empty jars. Think about that. If this was today, and someone's out there throwing something up on Instagram about look what these jars did. They manifested wine. All because they thought about it. These jars are famous. Think about it. Just let that, just enjoy that for a minute. Enjoy the offense that brings. It's not about the jars. It's not about the water. It's about the personhood, the character of Christ Jesus showing that he cares deeply about our circumstances and he can take the ordinary and turn it into extraordinary And the whole point behind all of that is one name is made famous and it's not James or the jars of clay or anything else. It is the name of Christ. The other piece that we see unfold here is that Jesus can address our issues at a deeper level than just surface level, meaning he always works beyond the outward appearance. I get really hung up on this one all the time, and if I get fiery with any of you ever, forgive me, but it comes from a place of righteous anger. I'll blame it on that. Outward appearance. Oh, these big old ugly limestone hand-carved jars. Nothing good can come from these. They're not fancy. They're not painted Ferrari red. They don't have a V12 under the hood. They don't have a special education. Where's their suit and tie? They can't be used by Jesus unless they're clothed right. Outward appearances. Jesus looks beyond and ministers beyond what is on the surface church. Jesus doesn't give a rip about what is going on out here. He wants to deal with this thing because this is eternal. This is far beyond just eating, sleeping, living, and dying. This will all pass away, including my awesome belly button lint sweater. It will all pass away. This will go back to dust one day. So will my eyes and my brain and my heart and my bones. They will all just pass away. It doesn't even matter when you think about it like that. This is just stuff. It's going to die. What doesn't die is the innermost part of our being, our cardia, our soul. It doesn't pass away. There is an eternity connected to the spiritual portion of who we are. And our eternities will continue to exist either with the Lord or separate from him forever. 
Jesus does not care at all about what this looks like. And I want to give this as a warning to anybody online or anybody who is watching here today. If you turn off your YouTube feeds, or turn off the preacher on television, or walk into here on Sunday, and you are so angry and upset by what people might be wearing, or not wearing, or whatever it may be, I want you to give your head a shake and ask the question, Lord, I think maybe this has more to do with my heart than your heart. Can you deal with me? Jesus doesn't care about this. And sure, this is affected by Christ's work. Yes, it is but it's still gonna die. How many of us would turn people away from speaking into our lives because of how they look? Jesus, we know, Jesus was not a sight to behold as a man. He came from a carpenter's family. He wasn't some white guy with blonde hair, blue eyes, walking around in some shiny, perfectly pressed robe bought from tip-top tailors or wherever at a discount suit store online or whatever, he didn't, that's not what Jesus wore. Jesus was a regular man with tough hands who was a carpenter who probably had some scars and some bruising. We can actually infer that he did because we saw scars and bruising on him after he even resurrected. Jesus was a regular guy that looked like you and me. He was not some megachurch preacher, polish, and perfect. Because when we polish and perfect our outside appearances, we have an incredible void deep in our hearts that we are trying to remedy by what will just pass away one day. Think about that. Jesus can address our issues at a deeper level than just the surface. He always works beyond the outward appearance. Remember that, church. Remember that. The last thing we see here is that the work of Christ is a changing work, even at a molecular level. Jesus' work is a changing work, even at a molecular level. Showing that the eternal work of Christ is an internal work done by him when we choose to be subject to his authority. It's an internal work. He changes us from the inside, taking us from death to life. Jesus is in the business of changing eternities. And he does that through his incredible work. Additionally, as old wine is supposed to be better than new wine, why is this new wine better than the old? Well, just as there is a you before you were changed by Christ, there was also old wine present in this wedding feast. The new wine that was brought forth by the miracle of Christ wasn't just better, it was the best. This is you in Christ Jesus. The old you even though our pride may lead us to believe that the old us was better, just like our pride sometimes leads us to believe that I'm a really happy drunk. I'm better when I'm on drugs. That's not true. Any sober person that's been around drunk you knows that that's not the case. Sometimes our pride leads us to believe that the old is better, but truly the new us in Christ Jesus pales in comparison. I mean, sorry, the, the old us 
separate from Christ, pales in comparison to the new you in Christ Jesus. The new you is symbolic and it shows a transformation, not just an improvement on what was already there, listen to this, not just an improvement on what was already there, but actually a betterment. It's not just a transformational work that we can manifest ourselves. Broken jar can't fix itself. It needs outside assistance. It has to be accomplished miraculously by Christ. And to top it all off, the new you gets to be a testimony of Christ's work to all who come in contact with you, just like this new wine, this best wine, was a testimony of the miracle of Jesus, not just practically to a family, but spiritually to those who looked at it afterwards. You, when Jesus restores and heals and gets to the core of who you are, you get an opportunity to be a testimony to all who come in contact with you. It will be clearly evident that you're not just an improved version of who you used to be, but rather a new creation in Christ Jesus. Worship team, I'll call you up. Are you hearing this this morning, church? When you say yes to Jesus and you say yes to the authority of him in your life, meaning you allow him to do with you what he needs to do, no holds barred. When you say yes to Jesus, there is going to be evidence that you are a new creation in Christ Jesus. Not just an improved version, but a new creation in Christ Jesus That's why this term, being born again, is profound. Born again, reborn, new, brand new, a new creation in Christ Jesus. The work is a transformation that's tangible. So in summary, does this private miracle Jesus does this private miracle that maybe only had uh, the, you know, an audience of a few. But the effect of this miracle had a very deep public impact and showcases for us today, right now, that the work of Christ is a transformative work. His work in us actually has an impact on the world around us as the transformation is actually tangible. Perhaps you're a new Christian or you've been a Christian for a long time, but you've pushed away that work of Jesus when he's working through and identifying the stuff that needs to get dealt with inside. It's not for a, he's not identifying these things for a giant public shaming event to make you feel miserable for the rest of your life. When he brings these things up in your heart and in your life or recalls to your mind areas that you need to repent of or deal with, he's not doing it to shame you. And in fact, it's not for the rest of the world to know. 
This is a private and personable transformative work. And when we say yes to Jesus, bringing these things up so that we can confess and say, Lord, I need to repent to you for the things that I've done that are far from who you've made me to be. When we repent and we walk in that, and what's amazing is part of who we used to be dies and something new is born again. And that process gets to happen in many portions of our lives. Maybe that's in our mind. Perhaps that's in our bodies. That could even be in our sexuality, in our identity. Working through that, asking the Lord, Lord, search me and know me. And as he deals with those things, don't push them away because you're hurt and ashamed and offended. Never. Jesus loves you desperately. And he draws these things out, not to belittle you or squash you, he draws these things out so that you have opportunity to deal with it. And again, maybe that's just between you and God. Good. Deal with it. Experience that private, transformative, miraculous work of Jesus and then walk into being a changed person. The book of John is written so that you may believe in Jesus and I believe that Jesus actually does have a special miracle for you and it is not too late to say yes to the transformational work of Jesus in your life. It is not too late to say yes to the transformational work of Jesus in your life. We're gonna close in prayer and we're gonna close with one final song of worship. I'll get you to stand up this morning. The gift of life that we receive from Jesus uh, it has nothing to do with our life here on earth at all. Even though our lives here on earth are changed, the consequences of Christ's work in our life are eternal, outside of time and space. They affect our innermost part of our being, and in turn, there is an eternal transformation that leads to an outward knowledge, an outward work. We are simply not water anymore, we have been transformed into wine. There's evidence. If you've been wondering where on earth is this evidence that Jesus loves me, where is this evidence that my life is supposed to be different, where is this evidence, I, I want to invite you this morning to kind of just walk through this prayer. And I believe that when we receive a gift from Jesus, like this gift of the new wine, this best wine, we need to have our hands open and out, symbolically showing we are ready to accept a gift. So if you're there, if you're in this place this morning and you're pondering and processing, if this is affecting you, just really simple, put your hands out, close your eyes, it's really easy. Put your distractions aside. Say, Jesus, search me and know me. Jesus, I want to follow you. Jesus, thank you for starting a transformative work in my life.
Jesus, when it comes to my life, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus, forgive me for how I've stepped away from who you are. Forgive me for my sin. Forgive me for my lack of understanding. Forgive me for my willful misunderstanding. Jesus, come into my life and change me from the inside out, just like you did with that water into wine. Jesus, use me as a testimony of who you are so that people's eternities will be changed. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.